Welcome in to Hardcore Penn State Football. I'm Corey Lestoki. Sean will be joining me in just a second. A lot to talk about today. NFL Draft Recap. Penn State's got a new AD. Some NIL fussing from the neighbors to the west. Some recruiting news as well. Lots and lots to talk about. Here is your trivia question. Eight NFL draft picks for Penn State this year. That was the most for Penn State since what year and how many were drafted? What year and how many were drafted more than the eight picks from this year? We'll get that answer and a lot more in just one second. Welcome on in, everybody. Welcome on in, everybody, to Hardcore Penn State Football. I am Corey Lestoki. With me, as always, Sean Kane. How are you doing today, Sean? Hey, Corey. Doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, we are just talking off air how it's starting to get warm for you up there in the 70s. It is getting hot down here in Alabama, like really hot. And um, to the point where you basically break a sweat just walking around just to throw something in your garbage can at seven in the morning. So we're, we're already getting there down here. Yeah. That humidity is terrible down there. I mean, we got it, we get it up here too, but it's not like down there where it could be like 90% humidity most days from May to August. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely been more humid the last week than it has been pretty much the whole year so far. And it's kind of a, a rude awakening because yeah, it's, it was nice for a while there. We actually had a little bit of a spring, but now it's, now it's officially summertime, and man, it's it's coming hard. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today, Sean. A lot to talk about today. We'll save the NFL draft recap towards maybe a little bit later on, and talk about some of the little tidbit things. So there's nothing like crazy that we need to go into, you know, a 40 minute conversation about. But there are a lot of little things that I thought were kind of interesting. So I'll let you choose, Sean. Do you want to talk about NIL and Mr. Addison first, or do you want to talk about the latest recruiting updates? Uh, let's start with, um, yeah, we can start with Addison. Uh, uh, yeah, so Jordan Addison, who uh, won the Blitnikoff Award last year for uh, Pittsburgh, uh, the, the hated rivals of the Penn State Nittany Lions, um, he um, is transferring to USC, and this was uh, totally unexpected out of the clear blue sky. Um, and the reason for that is he got a an NIL deal, which is estimated to be worth about three point five million dollars, and may include a house. Uh, those, to my knowledge, I think the details are still unconfirmed. Um, but he was not in the portal, as as far as anybody knows. And it raises the question, uh, was there tampering that went on, either between 
um, the USC coaching staff themselves or uh, potential boosters for uh, USC's program. And the reason I think this is a concern, um, and I'm sure especially our listeners from Western PA, uh, we have no love for the Pitt Panthers. Um, no, not really. But I still think most fans could say this could be problematic because uh, it raises the issue of tampering. And it raises a lot of other issues with NIL in that it was so it was done so ham so ham fistedly. I don't know if that's a word. Um, it was done so because it was just pushed on uh, college college sports due to the Supreme Court ruling. Um, and this was something that could have been taken care of a long time ago, but the NCAA chose to fight this to fight anything resembling NIL tooth and nail for uh, well over a decade now. Um, so this this um, has the potential to be a, a problem uh, well into the future. So what do you think of it, Corey? Right. I think you covered that well. I, I get the concern. And I think you explained it properly where it was an issue that the NCAA should have resolved. I don't like the recent blame on the people kind of coupling this in with this just being an NIL problem. It's not an NIL problem. It is the lack of regulation for NIL deals. And that's that's not the same thing. You want these kids to make money. You want them to be able to do marketing. You want them to be able to have some sort of market where they can um, basically make money for themselves. That's the good. That doesn't mean there was going to be Wild West. That doesn't mean there wasn't supposed to be some sort of regulations. That's where um, they went wrong. And a lot of the noise right now, in my opinion, is is not in the right direction. Uh, you do not want to be yelling at the players. You do not want to be yelling at the coaches. You do not want to be yelling at any advocate for the NIL. You want to be basically pissed off at the NCAA who continued to kick the can down the road as far as they possibly could until it took lawsuits, until it took the very, very last people saying they're going to form unions, all that. That's what it took for the NCAA to say, okay, yeah, fine, we'll allow it. But then they didn't do anything with it. That is the issue, not what Jordan Addison did. If it is in, if it's not a broken rule, then it is not illegal. It is not wrong, even though morally it could be. And you can't blame a guy who um, won the best receiver of the award last year, the Blindikoff. You can't blame him for trying to make more money while you can, because what we've learned, as you saw, a great receiver in Justin Ross uh, from Clemson, who went undrafted after his injury. You never know what is is going to happen. Nothing is promised in this business. And if you can make an extra $3 million, I don't know what Jordan Addison's situation is, but I'm sure $3 million wouldn't hurt. You cannot blame the guy for it one bit. You can blame Lincoln Riley for being a little snakish and maybe you know having those conversations before. You know Technically, they're not allowed to have those conversations um, until they're in the portal. But but that's not enough to me to, to blame this on Lincoln Riley or to blame this on Addison. I think this is a complete failure by the NCAA. And until they fix it, I don't blame anybody for doing it. You 
unlocked the beast and then you didn't you know you didn't put up an electrical fence you didn't you didn't train it you didn't put a little stake in the ground and put him on a chain you just let him free and and that's kind of your own fault I, I i really think the the frustration and especially by the pit fans at the entire nil is wrong i think you got to look at it as a whole they messed up and how they rolled this thing out and i don't blame anyone else coaches or players alike for taking advantage of it yeah, and like most things in life, if there are no rules, if there are no regulations, yeah, it's going to be chaotic. Um, uh, in our lifetime, we saw the economy crash because of deregulation on Wall Street. Um, if you do not, if you just let people run wild, yeah, that's what's that's what's going to happen. And Lincoln Riley, and um, is is he's just part of this system. And like you said, was, was he a bit snakish? Yes. Um, I, I'm here to tell you, everybody listening, most college football coaches are snakish. Um, there's not, there isn't a ton of, when you think of college, and believe me, there are a lot of good people who are college football coaches. But typically, when you think of college football coaches, um, a lot of them are used car salesmen. A lot of them will do and say whatever they have to to try to get ahead. And especially if it's legal, yeah, they're they're gonna they're gonna do it um, because it's not against the rules. Um, and I think Dennis Dodd actually pointed this out. I retweeted him. Um, this whole thing could have been settled when Ed O'Bannon first brought his first lawsuit up. Um, he was the college basketball player. Um, who sued the NCAA over the video games that he was that he uh, he was featured in, um, and of course they they never the college football players and college basketball players never saw any compensation for being in the video games, but they were still featured in the video games. Their names weren't, but it was wink wink. This is this guy. This is that guy. Same number, same height, same weight, but they would never say their name, and. The NCAA at that time could have not sort of nipped it in the bud, but also kind of met in the middle. Um, and they had no intention of doing it. And then they got caught with their pants down, and now everything's a mess. But I, I also uh, agree with you, Corey. Um, you can't place blame on people operating within a corrupt system. It's it's hard to place blame on them, especially the players, because the players are just the players are just trying to make some money. Yeah, I agree there. Um, yeah, I agree there. Let's um, we can talk about that a bunch, but really, that's just what it's going to be for now. I think Penn State has done. When you look at how the transfer portal can giveth and it can taketh, I think Penn State's all in all done really good as far as what they've gotten out of it compared to what they've lost to it. You know, you could look at AK and be like, yeah, first round pick, like that's a no brainer, easy money. But, you know, they lost a couple five stars. You know, they lost Justin Shorter. They lost Ricky Slade. So there's been some guys that have gone in there that, you know, you could make the argument potentially should have been really good for Penn State. But Justin Shorter hasn't really had a crazy great time at Florida. I think he's coming back for one more season there. Um, And I think Penn State has has got more out of it than than lost. But, but – I think it's only a matter of time before something like this happens to Penn State. I mean, if a Nick Saban or a, or a Lincoln, like let's say Lincoln Riley in two years 
Drew Aller hasn't started yet. Let's say Veyu starts, and Drew Aller's sitting there as a as a third year five star who hasn't really played much meaningful snaps. And Lincoln Riley's looking for a quarterback because all of his keep winning Heisman's and going to the NFL. And he goes, "Oh, hey, uh, Drew Aller, um, you know, come here for a couple million dollars. I don't really know what Penn State could offer a place." that USC could, and and I just think that's just going to be the way it is. And I'm maybe it won't be specifically the Drew Aller situation, but somewhere down the line, Penn State's going to get bit, um, and that's just that's just going to be the nature of the beast. Yeah, and like you said, it does work both ways, um, and we have to get um, our house in order as far as NIL goes. Because um, a place like USC is just appealing in itself, even without the NIL stuff. It's L.A., it's nice all the time. You were just talking about the weather in Pennsylvania. Um, and the weather from um, um, really March to May, it could be 20 degrees outside. It could be 80 degrees outside. Um, and those winters are long, long months. So it, you a place like USC has inherent advantages. Uh, then you add the money. You add Lincoln Riley, you're gonna. It's gonna be hard to compete with the place like that when they have when they're swimming in um, all this NIL money as well. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. And we talked about, you know, some of the guys, um, you know, Penn State's been recruiting and like how are they gonna get some of these guys over places that we know are doing better with NIL. Um, so that's just something to keep an eye on because um, I think that's gonna be a big part of it. Um, I don't know if you can remind me. Um, the guy who decommitted back in, in January. Neo Avery. Neo Avery. He's, He's the guy just, just kind of in that boat where that might come into the conversation, and I'm not sure Penn State wins that conversation. So, um, Speaking of recruiting, I guess we can move to recruiting, Sean. Um, it's It was a little bit quiet, and I was kind of curious when they were going to start scheduling because I started seeing other people's summer schedules for other colleges begin begin to kind of get scheduled. And I was wondering when the heck Penn State was going to make their kind of move for what day they wanted or what weekend they wanted. And it seems pretty clear that they're targeting the middle of June as a huge part of, uh, of when they want to target these kids. It looks like around June 17th or so is going to be one of two of the bigger weekends this summer. They're going to have a lot of the guys – um, that we've been talking about for the last month or so on campus that week, and including a lot of the guys that have already committed. Yeah, so um, on June 17th through the 19th, Rodney Gallier, Tamir Robinson, and Tony Rojas will all be visiting. Um, Penn State, in my opinion, leads with all three of these guys. Um, Rojas, I think they're, and this is typically what you see um, in the in the June June July months now, um, because they. You know, it used to be back in the day, official visits were in the fall. Now they're t- typically in the summer. And it's better, I think it's better for the players because they try to get their recruitment over with uh, by by the start of their um, senior season. So, yeah, those are going to, that's that June 17th weekend is going to be pivotal for uh, the Nittany Lions, um, uh, the Nittany Lions recruiting class this year. Yeah, I mean, we talk about, last summer and how just the crazy burst of recruits came in in June and July that's kind of one of those weekends and I think I want to say for at least for Rodney Gallagher I think he when he posted his list 
I want to say Penn State was last on his list. I was one of either Rojas or Gallagher. So I, I think you want to be the last guy. And I don't know if people schedule with that in mind because you know Penn State doesn't like when you schedule other places after you commit. But for Penn State's purposes and for everyone's purposes, you kind of want to be the last team that a guy – officially visits especially if you know that's going to be the probably the last time until he makes a decision so that's always good to see as well otherwise any other recruiting news i mean there's been uh you know some guys coming out with their longer list i wouldn't even call them short list um but i haven't seen anything crazy as of late obviously there's a, a big group of guys there from the blue and white weekend um but i think we already kind of talked about them last episode yeah like you said there's not a whole lot going on right now with recruiting we haven't had any commits since we last spoke um but it's more of an anticipation game right now in May, uh, just getting ready for the summer and um, official visits and all that. All right, well, let's move on from recruiting. I know it's a little bit light for what we usually do, but that's okay. Um, let's talk about Penn State hiring a new athletic director. And it was kind of about time we had hinted, uh, I believe it was last week, about who was kind of being talked about, and that ended up being the case. So new athletic director at Penn State. Patrick Kraft, who actually played at Penn State uh, when he was part of the Indiana football team in 1999. So a little full circle there. I believe this is his first, or I know for sure it's his first AD job at a Big Ten school. He's coming from Boston College. Sean, first impressions that you got from Patrick Kraft? Uh, Loved his energy. Um, Loved his energy. Um, You know, I think we both, like Sandy Barber, but she, um, she and Eric Barron, they tended to be more, um, conservative in their, um, I, I, like conservative in their, um, appearance. Like they, everything always seemed really buttoned up with, uh, buttoned up with them. Uh, Patrick Kraft did not give me that impression. He was, he had a lot of energy. I think he understands the importance of football, um, as part of the athletic department. Uh, football um, makes those 31 sports that we have at Penn State possible. Um, and he seems to understand that. I also heard that he gets really into the games on the sideline. So I'm very excited to see Patrick Kraft in a whiteout. Um, so I'll be on the lookout for that this year. And um, I think that enthusiasm has the potential to pay uh, dividends in fundraising. Uh, people just respond well to positive energy. And if you're really upbeat, I think you have a better chance of getting people to buy in you, at least initially. Um, I remember when James Franklin was hired, and I really bought into him just because I loved his energy so much. And I think a similar thing could happen for Patrick Kraft with the whole athletic department. I agree. I think... If you remember and you go back to what James Franklin kind of wanted from the next athletic director, I feel like they kind of hit it. And surprise, surprise, it's pretty what it seems to be pretty football centric, which I mean, say what you want about what Penn State is and isn't. I think this is a guy who could make Penn State. We talked about this. Maybe I mentioned this, what, two, three weeks ago, talking about what Georgia did, and they pushed that button. They knew what it would take to become a top four program, a number one program. They knew what it was going to take, and they were willing to do it. I don't think Sandy Barber was willing to take that last step 
I think Patrick Kraft is going to be a guy that would be able to do that and would want to be able to do that, which are two different things. Um, I think he possesses both of those. I think the word to keep in mind is bold. Um, what does that mean in this world where things are changing every day for the athletic department? What what does bold mean? Um and, and how does that help the football program? But also, and maybe more interestingly to everybody else that doesn't care about football, Penn State has a lot of sports. And we care a lot more about other sports than a lot of schools down here in the South do, for example. How does he? How does Kraft find that balance? And how, does everyone else accept that? Because there's a lot of people, football fans only, that really wanted to see Sandy Barber care more about football. In her defense, I feel like she did a really good job caring about everybody. Even Patrick Kraft talked about the Shrewsbury hire being a fantastic hire. I think Sandy Barber did a pretty good job giving love to a lot of different programs. That's something you have to balance at Penn State that you don't have to at an LSU or an Alabama. So... How does he find that balance, even though he seems a little bit more football-centric? I think you need somebody football-centric moving forward, but it's going to be finding that appropriate balance that makes everybody kind of happy because there are loud Penn State fans that don't care that much about Penn State football. So that will be an interesting kind of to see how he balances that. And I'm also curious to see how much he works um, with Franklin. And then obviously the biggest one that everyone's talking about is his – is his ability to raise money. We talked about this when Sandy retired. That was probably her biggest knock was her inability to raise enough funds to do X, Y, and Z. They got some things done, but how is Patrick Kraft going to take that next step? Is it a renovation of Beaver Stadium? Is it improving X, Y, and Z? Whatever the case may be, is he going to do a better job of that? Yeah, and that's that's what I'm hoping for with Kraft, um, that he can improve uh, the fundraising. Um and I'd also be interested to see how he throws his weight around with um, with the board with the board of trustees because the board of trustees they're the ones that prove everything and uh, the president and the athletic director are kind of you know the people out in front but the board of trustees makes a lot of these decisions and the donors and all that so being able to uh, politic with all these people and uh, being able to, um, yeah, being able to get that money secured uh, from the donors, um, yeah, that's that's going to be the thing I'm most interested in. Uh, he has sort of an advantage right now, in my opinion, that he doesn't have to make a hire for the big two, the big two sports, which is football, men's college basketball. Um, with Micah Shrewsbury being hired last year, and, and I thought he had a good good first season uh, for what he was given. And uh, James Franklin's locked up for 10 years, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, he's he's not going anywhere for a while. So uh, he won't have to make any uh, coaching decisions right away, uh, at least I don't think, in those, in those uh, big two sports, the two biggest money generators. Yeah, and just to, for people listening, just to give you kind of a – an idea. This is a quote from him at the press conference. Um, we will have success with honor and make no bones about it now. I talked to the coaches. I'm here to win. I'm here to win and we are going to win. End quote. So that doesn't give you an idea of what he wants to do. I think it's pretty clear, Sean, he wants to win. 
and um, he's gonna he's gonna find a way to do it. Yeah, and that's music to everybody's ears, right? <laughs> I guess. Um, he he really seems to be kind of the opposite of what Sandy Barber was, and I don't know if that's good or bad, but it definitely seems like a complete polar opposite scenario here with how he's going to go about things. And, and I think there's, like I said, there's good and bad things about the way both, you know, both ways you do it. Um, for all the Joe bots out there, he seemed to have a lot of respect for Joe Paterno. Um, talked about him probably more than you'd expect, probably more than like James Franklin's talked about Joe Paterno, um, at his time at Penn state. So you take that for what you will. Um, but yeah, he. I mean, he just seems like the polar opposite of what we have come to be used to with Penn State athletic directors. Yeah, and with the Joe Paterno thing, um, did it feel like to you, like if it really felt, and I, I think it's reality too, this was the first big um, post-scandal hire. Because when Sandy was brought in, it was after the scandal happened, but we were still recovering from it. Um, now it kind of seems like a new day, which I think is refreshing. Uh, we have a new president. We have a new athletic director. Um, we are well removed from anything that happened with uh, Jerry Sandusky or anything like that. So um, it just feels new and fresh. And I'm excited. Yeah, I think that's a good point too, and maybe that is why the hire. I, I'm if you go back to when Sandy Barber was hired, if that's a Patrick Kraft hire, I don't know if it goes over as well, honestly. I, I, I don't think Patrick Kraft would be good good at that time. I don't. Yeah, I I agree. I don't. You could make the argument, and maybe this is just Penn State doing things the right way, and who knows? Because we don't know where Patrick Kraft's career is going to end up. And I would, you know, people are going to, some people are going to really slant on Sandy Barber and whatever you can, but given the situations, you could make the argument that Penn state has made the precise exact hires that they were supposed to make from Bill O'Brien to James Franklin to Sandy Barber to now Patrick Kraft at the appropriate times. It is one thing to want to bring in a guy like Patrick Kraft, you know, in 2013, 2014, it's another thing to know the political kind of environment that you're in and bring in somebody like Sandy Barber who, give her credit, she de-escalated a lot of things. And she kind of, even in times where James Franklin wasn't doing very well, she found ways to kind of keep the people calm and collective. And, hell, she even gave out the I stand by my head coach um, death wish, as some would call it, and, and stood by him for real. And I think... You know, when we look back at all of this, especially if Patrick Kraft has success, um, whether that's winning championships in football or whatever the case may be, I, I think you're going to look back and be like, wow, Penn State got pretty lucky with kind of the leadership that they ended up with because, especially at the times, and really that's the most important part I'm trying to hit home here, at the times at which they hired these people. Yeah, and timing is timing's everything in life. Um and having the right people to be able to meet the moment is so important in any organization. Um, and I agree. I think um, having, you know, post-scandal, I thought it was important to have somebody like Sandy, Sandy Barber who could just kind of, like you said, he, she was kind of a um, calming person. Like, she was 
sort of uh, she did have a lot of I, I do think she had a lot of energy for Penn State, um, but she kind of did it in her own way. She wasn't like Patrick Kraft leading we are chants at the press conference. That just wasn't her style. Um, but she had she was able to keep things stabilized. Um, our athletic programs did well under her tenure, generally. And I think that's mostly what you want in an athletic director. Yes, it's true. Um, she didn't fundraise like we wanted her to. Uh, we saw the plans for Beaver Stadium a few years ago and then never saw any anything after that. Um, so, yeah, you could falter for that. But just being able to stabilize the universe, uh, the, the athletic part of the university at a pretty turbulent time. Um, and I, I think that I think that's very beneficial. And we tend to judge presidents based off of how they've left the country after their time was up. And if we apply that same logic to athletic directors, I think we could say Sandy Barber did a good job. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to give her an A+, but I think she did a good job. And and sometimes in the climate that Penn State was in, that's okay. And when we look back, you know, some of her biggest – if she left Penn State with James Franklin and Shrews, you could make the argument and obviously kept the wrestling program kicking butt and the hockey program, both men's and women's, doing exceptionally better – um, you could make the argument that she left Penn State in really good hands, uh, and, and so we'll see, and we'll we'll kind of see, and and we'll and we'll see what Patrick Kraft comes up with because I don't know how fast these things start happening, but you got to imagine that Beaver Stadium is, is is I mean it was even brought up in the press conference, and he's like I'm gonna keep the visitor away locker room if we do any renovations, I want to keep the lion roar, um, that to me tells me that it's at least on his mind. And if that's on his mind, if, if that's a part of a conversation that he's already prepared to answer, that tells me that I would expect something in the next year or two, wouldn't you think? Yeah, and like you said, he seemed pretty football centric, and I'm actually expecting, um, I'm actually expecting a lot more donations than have than we've been getting the past few years, just based off of Kraft's energy alone. Um, I mean, now now that I think about it, though, I mean. They got to do better on the field, too, because uh, people aren't going to donate money to what they see as potentially a sinking ship. Um, and I don't subscribe to that, at least not yet. Um, but we got to be able to win some games this year. Um, but with Patrick Kraft's energy, I really think that um, that you could see an influx of uh, of donations and maybe even some new donors. Okay, well, you're going to get new donors, and this is this is just awful, but this is just the truth. Number one, some people weren't going to donate because Sandy Barber's there because she was a woman. That's just how it is. There's people out there that are like that. Number two, people weren't going to donate because they thought Sandy Barber was a two, like the 100% anti-Joe Paterno when I thought she did a pretty good job balancing the you know, the, the political outside pressure with the internal Penn State alumni pressure. I thought she did a pretty good job with it. Nobody's going to agree with that statement. Some people are going to think she kind of gave in the Joe Paterno stuff way too much. Some people thought she didn't, you know, do enough for Joe Paterno. You're never going to win that argument. So, okay, me and you agree, and that, that might be ever, that might be it. So people weren't going to donate for that reason. And then number three, um, you know, any sort of politicalness with, with who she is is going to come to play with that as well. So um, from, from a personal perspective of things, I think 
that was another reason why people were, and that's just how it is. Um, and we're still going to have some of those issues because you have a black football coach. But I hate to say it, but in Pennsylvania, you have a white athletic director, white male athletic director. You're going to probably end up with better donations. Just how it is. Is it right? No, but that's just how it is. I agree. I think um, when you have, um, like you said, when you're in central PA, I think people, some people tend to gravitate more towards, you know, the the white guy, former athlete, than the, um, the than an older lesbian woman. I just think that's the way it is. Um, it shouldn't be that way. It should be about we all love Penn State sports and. Um, we want this person to do well at, um, supporting, um, and, you know, we want this person to do well with winning games and graduating our athletes and all that. That should be what the standard is. And I do think that's what the standard is for the overwhelming majority of Penn State fans. But there are people out there who don't think like that. And they obsess over, um, a a great football, a he was a great football coach who's been dead for 10 years. Um, so that's, that's kind of the reality with what that's, that those are, that that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Um, and then I don't know what Terry Pagula's problem is and why he doesn't donate more to the football program. Yeah. Let it be known that it doesn't matter if we have a, a lesbian, a black, I don't really care anything you can come up with. I will not probably be donating anything, um, in the million dollar range, probably for the next decade, at least maybe longer. So, um, you can count me out, Sean. I will not be, we'll not be doing a large gift anytime soon. Yeah. I don't have those kind of funds. I do it. I do like one lottery ticket a year and I, and I do, you know, a decent amount of scratch offs from time to time, but I still don't think that would put me anywhere near the ballpark to, uh, to be in that kind of realm. No one's going to be calling my phone number or leaving me an email anytime soon for donations. Yeah, you and me both. So, all right. Well, I think we covered that well. I think we're going to have more as we get to know, you know, Kraft and and how his relationship with Franklin evolves. But for now, I think that's good. Let's talk NFL draft. And by the way, I've already come up with the title of this episode. It's going to be Kraft and Draft, which I like. Um, NFL draft, Sean, we talked a pretty good amount previewing the NFL draft for Penn State. I think we probably did. I didn't listen to a bunch of other Penn State podcasts in the last month or two um, because I'm selfish and I only care about myself. Um, But I thought we put out a good amount of previewing. I thought we had multiple weeks where we were talking about some of these guys. And although Penn State, and I guess is a good time to answer the trivia question, had the most guys drafted since... 1990 oh shoot did i lose it was it six 1996 96 yes since 96 um i was still a little underwhelmed where with some of these i thought in general it was a weird nfl draft i thought there was a lot of weird picks especially in the first round i was like why they choose that? We saw Nicobe Dean from Georgia fall extremely far. We saw the quarterbacks fall extremely far. We saw the Baltimore Ravens continue to draft exceptionally well. I thought the Jets had a fantastic uh, draft, actually. 
Um, I thought the Steelers drafted terribly for those that are Steelers fans out there. Um, and that's not just because of Kenny Pickett, but there's George Pickens was picked by them as well, and I don't think he's a very good pick. Um, but I thought it was a weird draft, and I thought that affected some of where some of these Penn State guys were supposed to go and why some went a little bit later and earlier. Um, what were your original overall thoughts on the draft? Yeah, um, I think especially for the Penn State guys, it was a little weird. Uh, Jahan went before I thought he'd go. But I did tell my girlfriend we were watching the draft together. As soon as Drake London and Garrett Wilson went in the top ten, I said Dotson's going to go soon. Um, so it didn't. So after I saw those two picks, it didn't surprise me if he went that quick. But I, I didn't expect him to be drafted in the top sixteen. Not saying he didn't deserve to be drafted that high, but I just didn't expect it. Um, didn't shock me that Brisker and Ebicady fell to round two. Um, thought. Brisker would be drafted before he was, um, but hey, what do I know? <laughs> um, and then Lucetta getting drafted so late, that really shocked me. Like, he almost went undrafted, which seems mind-boggling to me. And, um, and Jordan Stout went earlier than I thought. Uh, he was the first punter off the board, so shout-out to Jordan Stout. You're the GOAT. Um, yeah, I agree with you. The Ravens had a great draft. They always do. That's why, you know, they're consistently always a, a really good, uh, they're maybe the best, the best run organization in the NFL. Uh, it's debatable, but I think they're right up there. Uh, the Patriots had a confusing draft. Um, Giants had a great draft. I thought they drafted the best player in the draft, Kayvon Thibodeau, and I thought the best offensive lineman in the draft. Um, Eagles had a good draft as well. Uh, and yeah, I, the Nicobe Dean thing really surprised me. Um, and that might have delayed things for the linebackers a little bit. I don't think it I might not have affected Lucetta going as late as he did, but I did think that caused, uh, some backup in the linebacker in the linebackers that were picked, uh, like Channing Tindall, who the Dolphins drafted, I didn't expect him to fall to 102, but he did. Uh, Leo Chanel also fell into the 100s. I thought he was very, very good at Wisconsin. Um, so, yeah, th- those are really my thoughts. Um, all the guys who I expected to be picked were picked. I thought Ellis Brooks might have had a shot, but he unfortunately went. Uh, well, he was signed, though, but he wasn't drafted. He was signed pretty quickly after the draft, though. I was gonna ask you who you were kind of you kind of you answered a lot of my questions right off the bat, but that's fine. Um, I appreciate that. I agree with you about Jahan Dotson. I thought he went a little bit sooner. Um, I, I still think he's better than Drake London, but that's for another conversation, another day. I thought the Packers were gonna take a receiver in the first round. They didn't. We'll see if that ends up biting them. I think they end up with Sky Moore, so we'll see if that ends up being good. I agree with you on pretty much everything else you said. Not crazy shocked. I thought Brisker went a little further back in the in the second round than I thought he would. I thought AK and Brisker would be like top ten picks in that second round. I couldn't believe they were both still there, uh, especially with the way some of these guys teams are picking. I mean, you the Cowboys had a chance to take AK, and they took some offensive lineman from Tulsa, I believe. And I'm just like, you had a chance to have AK and Micah Parsons rushing the passer. And you took some schmuck from Tulsa. Now, this might be the best schmuck ever from Tulsa. I don't know because I'm not an offensive line scout. But everyone else said it was a little bit of a reach. And I'm just thinking to myself, you had a chance to take 
Arnold Ebby Katie and and we know how important pass rushing. I don't know. I thought that was a little sus. Um, we saw a couple more safeties go in front of Jaquan Brisker than we both thought would happen. Um, but that's just that's just the way it is. I don't know if they think Brisker isn't fast enough. I don't know what or if he's just he was boxed in as too much of a running stopper safety, even though he could play all the positions. I'm not really sure. Brandon Smith going in the fourth round. I, I thought that was a surprise. I thought he was more of a fifth, sixth guy. Um, I don't know what Carolina exactly sees. I know what, well, I know what they see, and I don't blame them for what I know they see, but I don't know how they're going to use him yet. Are they going to just let him rush the passer and see if they can – if he has the tools to just rush the passer. Because I don't know if you can, Sean, if you can train a guy to just get better in space. I don't know if that's something you can do. Like, you can just, you're not very good in space, and now we're going to make you good in space. I don't know if that's something that's really coachable. Yeah, I think some things with him are coachable. Um, I think he can learn how to tackle better um, and not just try to rip someone's head off every time he tries to make a tackle. Um, so some of the fundamentals can get better. Um, but if he doesn't improve on that, then I can't see him staying long in the NFL as a linebacker. Now, I think you've touched on this before, maybe as an end, that might be an interesting spot for him because I think he's big enough to play end, and he's definitely fast enough. So He's an interesting one. And another guy, um, I don't know if you're going to bring him up or not, uh, Rasheed Walker falling in the seventh round. That was a surprise to me too. Yeah, I, I want to say that was injury-related. Don't you think? Like that had to be some sort of injury-related, like, hey, we can take a chance on this guy, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take a chance on this guy you know, as, as late as possible. Um, I thought Tariq Castro-Fields kind of fell where we didn't really know where he could fall. I thought he could have, you know, he could have fell at three, he could have fallen at seven, so or gone undrafted, so... Not surprised there. Um, you covered Jordan Stout already. Lucada, I really thought I get it. And it just goes to show they care so much more about measurables than they do about um, productivity, right? I mean, you Lucada doesn't have the measurables. Brandon Smith does. Brandon Smith goes in a fourth round. Lucada, who was way more important to this team, goes in a seventh round. So I thought that was just another proof that, hey, it doesn't really matter what you did. It's kind of how you are built and, and what you're going to be able to do at the next level. So, Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think if you pulled Penn State fans, they'd probably say, like, who would you rather your favorite NFL team have, Brandon Smith or Jesse Lucetta? Most of them probably would have said Lucetta. But, you know, these NFL scouts, they get paid a lot of money for what they do, so maybe they know better. Yeah, I think Brandon Smith's a guy, if he, if he makes a roster – there's going to be a reason why he made the roster. And I think he could have a really good NFL career. But if he doesn't make the roster, I wouldn't be surprised. Does that make sense? He just seems like he's going to be a, a home run or bust kind of guy where they have a role for him or they know where, you know a way they can make him succeed and be successful or it's going to just not happen at all. And it's going to be like from the first week of camp, they're going to be like, yeah, this guy, this guy doesn't have what we thought he had. Yeah, he's the quintessential uh, boomer bust guy. So he, um, I, like, like you said, I could see him being a pro bowler because he's talented enough to do that. Um, and I could also see him having trouble sticking on rosters. Um, maybe with, and I don't want to like 
throw anybody on the coaching staff under the bus because I don't think it's really their fault. But maybe with NFL coaching, maybe they'll be able to find something in him. Um, Maybe with just being in the NFL, not having to worry about school and only focusing on your craft, maybe that will make him, maybe that will help him get better. Um, Because I, I do, I do see the potential there for him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, joining him in Carolina, two undrafted free agents, Drew Hartlub and John Lovett. I liked this. I thought both of those guys bring potential for Carolina. Those two guys are two guys that I would take a chance on undrafted free agent-wise. Uh, Lovett had potential when he came to Penn State. He had some issues off the field that kind of helped, kept him out early. I think that, that affected how much he got to play throughout the whole season. And then Drew, of course, you know, runs an insanely fast 40-40-4-2-2. So he's worth at least a spot just because of that speed alone. So those two guys going to Carolina. Ellis Brooks, like you mentioned, goes to Green Bay, who I thought I, I will put money down. I don't know if there's betting for who makes a roster. I would put 100, 100 bucks down that Ellis Brooks makes the team. I, I just I He's a guy who's always in the right spot at the right time. Uh Derek Tangelo going to Atlanta joins AK there, so that that's kind of a little interesting. You know, you see sometimes guys go to the same spot, obviously, but two guys in the same kind of position group. I think that was kind of interesting. And then Eric Wilson going to New Orleans Saints uh, to round up those uh, undrafted free agents. Yeah, um, where did Matt Rules? Where did Matt Rule play college football again? Oh, you know what? You're gonna have to remind me on that one, Sean. Oh, right, he's a Nittany Lion. <laughs> and he's bringing in three Nittany Lions. So, <laughs> but yeah, thrilled for those, in all honesty, thrilled for those guys. Um, Hartlob, I mean, if he, the thing with him is we've never seen him really play safety, um, except in mop-up duty. But if he could be semi-competent, that speed and how good he is as a gunner, he could have a shot to make a roster. I, I think that it sounds crazy, but if he could, you only have to be somewhat competent to be like a third string safety on an NFL roster. I don't know if he's capable of it um, or if he could be the fifth or sixth wide receiver because they could always move him to a new spot. Um, that speed and his ability as a gunner, I mean, that is on tape. So that'll be interesting. I agree with you on Alice Brooks. Uh, the guy's just a football player. He's just not he just doesn't have that athleticism. If he was a little faster and a little bigger, I mean, he would be a no doubt draft pick, but you know, like you said, measurables are so important to even get drafted in the NFL. Right. Right. I want to go back and just kind of, since you brought up Matt rule, um, there's already rumors flying saying, Hey, if we get rid of James Franklin, Matt rule and Patrick Kraft spent about five years at temple together. When Matt Rule was there, would that be somebody Mr. Kraft calls in that situation? I'm I I am not saying get rid of Franklin or anything like that. I'm just saying people are already kind of making those connections, uh, for you know you pe- crazy people out there that that love that stuff. So that that is a relationship out there and it's a good one. Yes, that rumor is true. Uh, Matt Rule, I think Kraft described him as like his brother. Um, so take it for what it's worth. Um, if James Franklin, for whatever reason, excuse me, isn't here in the next few years. Um, he's a name to look out for. 
Wouldn't it be funny, Sean, if... I mean, it wouldn't be funny because if Franklin gets fired, that means Penn State didn't have multiple good seasons. But the irony of a situation where Patrick Kraft, the former AD at Temple, and Matt Rule, the former head coach at Temple, when they both beat James Franklin and Penn State, would then be the head coach and AD at Penn State, respectfully. There's some seriously sweet irony there. Oh, for sure. Um, And... Matt Rule's teams always played well against Penn State. I mean, they straight up beat us the one year in 2015. Um, but they always played well. Um, in 2016, I mean, that was a, that was a dogfight that game until the fourth quarter. Saquon had that long run, and then it was all over. Um, and then, you know, his teams just fight and fight and fight. And that that's really that's what I kind of like about him. Um, his t- you know, he, and he's a pro. He's, a, I know we're we're jump we're jumping right in the Matt Rill rabbit hole. I know, <laughs> but he is he is a team builder, and he built that team at Temple, and then he built the team at Baylor. Um, so there would be some irony if he were hired as a guy who was already beaten Penn State, and he would be coming with his athletic director, who also uh, was presiding when they beat Penn State. I did not mean to go down that rabbit hole. I just wanted to throw that out there, Sean. You, you took the bait and you ran with it. Um, we can clearly see where your heart lies in this whole thing. So um, we'll keep an eye on you because, you know, we don't want you to fall too down there. It'd be interesting to see what he does in Carolina because obviously last season wasn't very good. Um, they have kind of have to figure some things out there because last season was, was just not good at all. Um, the good-ish news for them is that conference – or excuse me, that division isn't very good besides the Buccaneers. So if they could figure it out at all, they'd be in a, in a, in a decent spot. So we'll uh, we'll see what they can do there. A lot, like, I just love the draft because it's it, obviously some Penn State guys retire or leave. Oh, you know what? I Before I get – well, I'll say that first. Um, but it's always nice because there's more Penn State guys in the NFL, which means there's I don't watch NFL religiously like you do. I don't have a team. And so whenever I can turn on an NFL game – and there be Penn State players for me to actively watch. I love that. I, it doesn't matter who it is. I'm like, oh, sweet, I can get to see so-and-so. And that, to me, makes it worth watching NFL football on Sundays. And since James Franklin has been here, you can say what you want about everything else. Maybe we should finish this whole conversation, Sean, with this uh, point and let have this last little bit of discussion because it came up. But there's been a lot more guys drafted since James Franklin has been here, and there's a lot more guys in productivity in the NFL especially at important positions uh, since James Franklin has been there. I um, want to let you uh, think about that, but I also want to say there's another receiver that I, I think I retweeted it, but now I can't think of his name. Um, I, he, the guy who went to IUP that just uh, that was drafted. Yes, he got drafted, correct? Uh, he, I think he was an unsigned. I think he was an undrafted free agent. Okay, maybe, oh, you know, maybe that was what it was. I was retweeted something, and I was like, what, what was that? I missed it. Um, yeah, so that was cool to see as well. Yeah, IUP, former Irvin Charles, goes to the Jets. So uh, I, I wanted to highlight that as well. If anyone was keeping up with Irvin Charles at IUP, he is, he is now signed with the Jets. Had a huge Sean. play in 2016. Yeah, huge play, huge play. You could make the argument that Irvin Charles – deserves his own statue as far as what he did 
um, for, for the 2016 season. But, Sean, my question for you is this, and I've seen this around Facebook and I've seen this on Twitter already. If all of these draft picks are going to the NFL, why does our team suck so much? And I'll let you go first. Woo! All right. Uh, that, that, that is... That is... That is kind of a legitimate question. Um, I mean, this past year, things fell apart when Sean Clifford got hurt at Iowa. Um, I can't. I don't think I'm the only one. But when Penn State was up 17-3, I had visions of the playoffs dancing in my head. And everything was going right. And then it all fell apart. And that's what happens when you don't have a competent offensive line. Um, your quarterback goes out and they replace them with someone who at that moment didn't have any business being on the field. Um, Damn it, Sean, don't be nice about it. We're past being nice. He's not even on the team anymore. Yeah. he, he Is he at UMass? He's at UConn, where UConn, he probably should be. <laughs> We're over it, okay? It's almost been a year. We're allowed to talk shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you saw what happened there. Um, and then you lose to Illinois. Uh, and there's no excuse to ever lose to Illinois uh, when they are that horrible. Uh, but we did. And then we had to play Ohio State, who's Ohio State. And we lost a tough game there. And then all of a sudden, we have three losses. And then we played Michigan, who made the playoffs. And then we lost to a good Michigan State team. So that's that's how the year went. Um, I don't think you've answered the question yet, Sean. How does it happen? Well, we underachieved, everybody. <laughs> that that's that that that's the long that's the short answer. We. We underachieved for what James Franklin's getting paid and what Mike Yurcich is getting paid. They couldn't figure it out on offense. And we had a bunch of talented guys. We had the best defense of James Franklin's tenure, and we only won seven games. And that shouldn't be acceptable to anybody. Um, but silver lining? We had a great recruiting class. So... And last year does not affect this year. And the last time James Franklin has had this much pressure on him going into a season, we won the Big Ten. So maybe he's the type of guy that does better with the pressure on. I think we've gotten to the point in our relationship, where, or in, in this in this podcast in general, where this is the first time I think people are going to start realizing, maybe picking sides between you and me. Because I think you are much more of a realist, and you are going to be harder on James Franklin than I'm going to be when it comes to the regular season. I, I know that's just going to be the case, and I will fight admirably. Um, I agree with what you said. I I agree that they underperformed. I agree that a main reason for why that was the case is because of Sean Clifford. But like you said, that doesn't excuse not having a good enough backup. Now, we were talking about the transfer portal earlier and how it giveth and it taketh. Well, it did taketh Tommy Stevens away, and it did taketh Will Levis away, who both went and did good things. You can argue Will Levis did great things for Kentucky um, and is coming back for one more season. 
those two things, although weren't blockbuster huge deals at the time, you, they ended up being obviously very important to how this past season went. Not an excuse, but I think it's fair if you're going to paint the picture, you paint the entire picture, and I think that obviously was a big part of it. Now, you're right, and probably the most frustrating part about what you're right about was how good the defense was because it almost felt like a Joe Paterno season, and and not all Joe Paterno seasons, but a lot of Joe Paterno seasons, where the defense plays so good and you're just poking the offense with the stick and you're like, do something, do something. Because if they would just do anything sometimes and just get out of their own way, you would probably win the game. I mean, you could make that argument in the Michigan game. Um, you could make that argument even at some aspects of, well, obviously the Illinois game, um, but in the Iowa game as well. And and that part's frustrating, and I think that's fair. That being said, I don't like having this conversation, the whole point of this question, I don't like the way it's phrased because it's giving the idea that this isn't normal. Like next year it's going to go back to just being a couple guys drafted. And I don't think that's the case, Sean. The question makes it seem like we are going to go back to how it was. James Franklin has continued to put more and more guys in the NFL, and I don't think that's going to change. I think, yes, the the on-the-field productivity needs to be better. They need to win more than what they won last year because they obviously have better guys. But I think this is going to become a relative norm to see five to ten guys being drafted from here on out. I just think that's going to be the norm for Penn State. They had a bunch of guys on defenses last year. You could potentially see a bunch of guys get drafted again next year. I mean, I think what they already had Jair Brown up there. Um, I, I didn't look at the mock draft overall. I don't know if you looked at it. But there's already a potential for some of these guys to go in the first and second round. I think this is going to become a normal, and it isn't going to be some obscure, crazy thing like, oh, we actually had a good team NFL-wise that we sucked. Like, no, we're going to have a good team NFL-wise every year, and we'll see if we suck every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I agree with that last point. For sure, we're going to have, um, you know, just with the recruiting class in general, with, with the recruiting classes in general, uh, you're going to have NFL guys in there because we're getting – Lots of four- and five-star guys every year. And those are the guys who typically are the ones that get drafted, especially high. Um, But I want to see James Franklin better in-game this year. Um, I just watched the Outback Bowl, uh, the fake punt. And I still don't know what they were trying to do. I think they were trying to either get an interference or complete the pass. And that makes no sense at all. Why not just punt? So things like that. Things like faking a punt and then faking a kick for a few plays later. Huh? So there are things that he just needs to get better at with managing games. Um, And do I think the season went south when Sean Clifford got hurt? Yeah. I mean, that's obvious. But there are things that I'd like to see James Franklin just get better at. I agree, and I think some things he has gotten better at, and I I can't point to a specific example right now. A lot of those blunders that you just mentioned, possibly getting cleaned up with Stacy Collins coming in, the special teams coordinator. So we'll see if Stacy Collins can have a, a positive impact with some of those things. Um, but yeah, I mean there are times when you're scratching your head, 
And I'm not going to say no to that. But you could argue, and I guess any good fan, at least down here in the South, will say that your coach sucks at managing games at some point or your coach sucks at calling plays at some point. It doesn't matter who or you know how many titles Nick Saban has won. It, last year for Alabama fans down here, it was Nick Saban's letting Bill O'Brien have too much of a leash. Like He's letting Bill O'Brien run too much. Like, he, Bill O'Brien doesn't know how to run the offense. I mean, there's always a, there's always something if you're not winning, which is fine, and I agree with what you're saying. There were times where you're like really were scratching your head, but, but, I think, a he's improving on some of those things because if you go back to 2015, 2016, I mean, there are some really like huh moments, and, and you still have huh moments, but not as many huh moments, and. I better players, especially at the offensive line position, makes those things kind of look better. For example, four minute offense is a big topic for James Franklin and and how we win games when we have a, a small lead, right? That was a big issue from 2015. I mean, we had to throw the ball against Maryland when we played at MT Bank Stadium because we literally couldn't run the ball. So if we have a running game, I think a lot of those questions get answered easily. I don't know. And maybe someone else knows the answer. I don't know how you successfully be consistent without a running game. Because consistency comes from running, from having a running game. And really, James Franklin never has had one. And I think it's hard to be a, a consistent game manager from a play-calling perspective when you can't run the ball. Yeah, this past season, do you know when alarm bells first went off for me? When we played Villanova. Villanova, yeah. Still yep. couldn't Vill- run the ball. Yeah, that was that was that was what I thought you were gonna say. Yes, sir. That that's when I was like, "Oh wow, we really can't do it, can we?" I was thinking going into it that, "Oh, we'll iron some stuff out against Villanova." Well, Villanova did a good job shutting our run game down. Um, so that was always going to be a hindrance. Um, so that's why it's incumbent on. Uh, Phil Troutwine and Jay Wan Sider to figure the run game out, and James Franklin. Yeah, I mean, you got you have to. And Villanova, let's give them some credit. Like they're not, they weren't like an awful, they weren't Youngstown State or anything. But still, you should be able to push those guys around, and you should be able to get the job done. I agree. And I mean, we'll see. But that is going to be the test because if you don't have consistency there, I do not see how you can have consistency with your offense at all. And, and you don't have to have a good offensive line, but you got to find ways to, to get the ball going. And I think if you saw that, if have we ever seen a team, Sean, that has been coached by James Franklin where they could line up and just run the ball more times than not and, and feel good about it. Like, no, I don't, not even close. I mean, you know, even yeah, uh, yeah, you can make the argument, especially when Saquon was there. Um, and in fact, that was probably, a good offensive line. You probably went, you probably went to Eisman. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's true. So it's frustrating, but I think I like to lean a lot more of the James Franklin issues on the lack of consistency there. But I agree, there are still head scratching moments. But I think there's not enough of those. Where if we have a good offensive line, like if James Franklin called a perfect game, if you could choose that or you could choose to have a, a like a B-plus offensive line and you had to tell me which one was going to win more games, I would take the better offensive line because I think at most James Franklin might cost you one game. 
I think having a bad offensive line, because you could argue is the reason why Sean Clifford got hurt, that ends up costing you two to four games every season. That's a good one. I'd probably say the B-plus offensive line, too. But knowing that James Franklin could cost you a game every year, I mean, that probably means we're not going to win a national championship with James Franklin. Why does it say that? Well, because you're going to lose at least one game because of James Franklin. It's very hard to win the rest of your games, you know, with everything running smoothly. Yeah, it's, 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 and you have 15 games to play to win an, I think it's 15, is it fourth? I think it's 15 to win a national championship. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a tall order to have a coach that you know will cost you a game a year. Nick Saban doesn't cost Alabama games. And that's a big thing. Um, Kick six would like to remind you of something. Okay, well, th- there's one. There's one. Uh, but very rarely does Nick Saban cost you a game. Um, so, but James, but if Franklin, if we know going in, your coach alone is going to cost you one game. Just one. Well, yeah, I mean, you're probably not going to win it. See, I, I disagree. I think in today's landscape, you can. And and let, let's say James Franklin has the potential to lose you a game a year. I agree with that statement 100%. Does that happen in the situ- in the game that, you know, in the Ohio State game where it costs you? Does it happen in the biggest game? Then, yeah, that sucks. But maybe his decision happens or maybe his boneheaded thought happens in a game that isn't as important and your talent of your team is able to win you that game anyway. That, to me, makes me feel better about it. And also, we're in a world where you don't have to win. A, you don't have to go undefeated. You don't have. But what if that mistake does happen against a team? Like, I'm just picking a name, Minnesota. And then you lose to Ohio State. Well, there you have two losses. Well, I think you could argue that maybe it has already happened. <laughs> <laughs> it actually has, yeah. <laughs> against the same exact teams. Uh, if I could, it, and I don't want to change subject. Maybe 10-2 is a very good year. But it's not going to get you in the playoff. At, in all and likelihood. I- yeah, until it expands to eight, which inevitably will. But if I could change, just pivot on this point just a little bit and say this. If I could ask for one thing to improve from James Franklin, it wouldn't be game-managing improvements. To me, the biggest thing I would like to see improved is coming off of bye weeks. That, to me, uh, and let me rephrase that even more, coming off of losing bye weeks. Like, we lost, we have a bye week, and we come out and we look like garbage again. That, to me, if we clean that up, that would be something that, I mean, how many more wins do we have over the last four years? I mean, that to me is a bigger thing that I want James Franklin to fix because literally since that's that's happened, we've had new offensive coordinators. We're about to have a new defensive coordinator. All the other staff has pretty much changed out, like, and that has stayed consistent. So whatever the situation, I don't know what they got to do, but that to me is a bigger concern as far as James Franklin's coaching ability than any in-game, four-minute offense, weird special teams decisions, etc. I'm not saying they're not there, but I'm saying if you could fix one, I would focus on that. That's a very good point because we are terrible off of ice. Um we lost Illinois off a of bye week this year, and that's that. Like I said at the beginning of the pod, that just should not happen against a team like that. Um, I don't know what they do during bye weeks, um, and 
really frankly off the losses in general. I think he's an energy guy, which is very good when you're winning. But when you're losing, I, I, I don't know if they get down in the dumps or, or what it is. Um, but he just he has to find a way to have us come off of buys and off of losses. Well, especially, like you said, if we lose a game and then we have a bye week the next week. I mean, did, did, do they fall into a state of depression for for 13, for 13 days? I, I don't know. Um, and a lot of it's when we still have stuff on the line. Like this year, we lost to Iowa, and everyone was like, all right, it's no problem. Sucked losing, but our quarterback went out. We were clearly the better team, but the quarterback got hurt. And then you lose to a clearly inferior opponent two weeks later. Just Why? How does how does that happen? You know, it's happened in different ways too, right? Like that game, just for what it was, it was weird, it was strange. But then you go back to like the Michigan State game. I want to say in 2018, 2017. So it was twenty eighteen at home against Michigan State or away? I forget which one was which. The one, okay, that's the one that they touched the caught the touchdown pass late, right? And I think. Uh, yep. Arari had a chance at interception a little bit earlier um, and wasn't able he to did. Run to it. He had a drop, unfortunately. Yeah, so that game didn't happen at all the same way the Illinois game happened. But I don't know, because that bye week, they say they reflect on themselves, right? They say that they scout themselves that week, and they don't really have that any opportunity to do that in game weeks because they're obviously focused on their opponent, which, okay, that's fine. But clearly that's not working. Like, maybe we don't scout our ourselves maybe we just say we're good and we're just going to scout this next team illinois or ohio state whoever it may be we're going to scout them for two weeks because i am sick of losing the week after a loss after a bye like i don't know what that term is i guess the bye week the game after a bye week with the previous week being a loss there's no better way to say it (laughs) yeah i i agree with you and i gotta say like in bowl games i know we lost this year but typically, our guys seem ready for them, um, and that's that's all. That's obviously a lull, um, but they seem ready to go and uh, ready to play. Maybe they have to incorporate a lot of what they do to prepare for bowl games. And you know the famous or sometimes infamous tweets. The uh, like we're playing Purdue, so Frank little tweet Purdue, 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 Purdue. Like just do that after a loss. Going in, going into a bye week and just say, all right, we're going to watch film and then we're going to spend two weeks getting ready for um, whoever you play next. So I, I do agree with you. Maybe they have to spend a little less time reflecting because maybe, I don't know, it just gets them down in the dumps or something when they have to reflect off a loss. I don't know, man. I don't know. We have a lot more time to talk about all this as we kind of hit the dog days of summer here um so we will uh we'll table that discussion for now we have a lot more but this one is starting to run a little bit long um so let's let's wrap this one up sean any final thoughts about everything we talked about today a lot to talk about no i don't think so i think we covered quite a bit yeah it was good to be back i'm again apologize we're a little bit late but life happens um hopefully we'll be back Maybe I'll have to talk with you. We'll have to figure out. Um, we'll figure out when the next one will be released. But um, that is all for now, everybody. So for Sean Kane, 
I'm Corey Listoki. You were listening to Hardcore Penn State Football. Make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And follow us on Twitter as well. I will uh, talk to you later, Sean. Thanks, Corey. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. All right. Catch you all next time.